All the latest business news from WA, delivered daily. At close of business, news briefing. Good afternoon, it's Jacinta Burton with your Friday afternoon headlines. Western Australian customers of several major arts organisations may have been impacted by a cyber breach of the digital marketing platform used by the Arts and Culture Trust. In a message to customers, the Arts and Culture Trust said it had received advice from Wordfly, the vendor it uses to send emails to ticket holders, that its platform was subject to a cyber security incident. The consortium consists of some of the state's largest arts organisations including Barking Gecko Theatre, the Black Swan State Theatre Company of WA, Perth Festival, the WA Ballet and the West Australian Opera. Business News understands that the data impacted by the incident did not include sensitive personal information like credit card numbers or government identification numbers. And Gucci has cemented its move to Rain Square after designs were lodged to refurbish a Murray Street building to accommodate the luxury retailer. Cox Architecture has submitted plans to the City of Perth to redevelop the existing three-storey building at 306 Murray Street at the corner of Queen Street. Business News covered Gucci's intentions to move from its King Street store, where it has been since 2015. One of a host of luxury retailers moving from the historic strip to Rain Square, the development application describes the proposed refurbishment of the site as an exciting transformation of an existing into a desirable high-end international retail destination and boutique office facility. It's understood Gucci will relocate its store to the ground floor of the building and offices will occupy the floors above. Tiffany & Co, Chanel and Louis Vuitton are among the luxury retailers already at the Charter Hall-owned precinct. And Alana McTiernan has fiercely defended her comments about the spread of foot and mouth disease, insisting they were taken out of context, amid claims they were out of touch and calls for her sacking. Media reports emerged this morning indicating the State Agriculture Minister had attempted to downplay the impact of the disease entering WA and claimed it could even lower the price of meat and milk products. The country has been enforcing new border security measures and testing regimes for meat and other animal products after the disease was detected in Bali earlier this month. The measures are designed to safeguard the country's agricultural industry from the virus, which affects cattle, sheep, goats and pigs, over fears it could cost the economy $80 billion. The state opposition slammed the comments, with agriculture spokesperson Colin de Grasse labelling them out of touch and offensive to WA farmers and accusing Ms McTiernan of taking a blasé approach. Mr DeGrasse said an outbreak of FMD was the biggest threat to the agricultural industry in recent memory and that he had requested an urgent briefing from her department to ensure it was being taken seriously. Meanwhile, Federal MP Rick Wilson has reportedly called for her resignation. During a press conference this afternoon, Ms McTiernan defended the comments, insisting the state was taking the threat extremely seriously. She said the comments were made in response to fears the state's food supply may be under threat, which could subsequently lead to panic buying and were designed to stem anxiety among consumers. And coming up next, senior journalist Matt McKenzie weighs in on monetary policy settings, inflation, future cash rate rises and Australia's risk of a recession. We understand that business relies on being informed. That's why Business News is your most reliable source of news, industry insights and business connections. To stay fully informed, we encourage you to subscribe to our emails, flick through our magazine and visit businessnews.com.au for daily news updates. 
It's the best way to ensure you have the information you need to be future ready. Business News. More news, more insights, more connections. It's been top of mind for me, if not that of our listeners, but Treasurer Jim Chalmers has finally detailed the government's promised review of the Reserve Bank, the first in more than two decades to examine the country's monetary policy settings. The review will be headed by three figures, and this is a mouthful. They are the Secretary for Public Sector Reform, Gordon DeBrower, ANU Economics Professor Renee Fry-McKibben, and former Bank of Canada Deputy Governor Carolyn Wilkins. The terms of reference are purposely broad, and most pertinently, they will examine governance and the board structure. Uh, That's of note because the RBA stands apart from the European Central Bank and the US Federal Reserve in that its board is majority business people without experience in monetary policy. Uh, The Secretary of the Finance Department also sits on the board, which is unlike other countries. Uh, It's worth examining whether this was an impediment to Australia's monetary response in recent years, but with inflation in the US at 9.1% and the baseline interest rate at 1.75% in the 12 months to June, and inflation in Europe at 8.6% and the baseline interest rate as high as 0.75%, it's worth considering whether the bank's problem is its board structure, given comparable central banks with monetary economists sitting in the majority on their boards have suffered worse inflation against lower cash rates. Expectations of the baby being thrown out with the bathwater may be overrated too, as FMG Deputy Chair Mark Barnaba's term has been extended by 12 months taking it past the March reporting date for the review's findings. The undercurrent of the review is obvious. That is, do policy settings, and particularly expectations about inflation and the justification for cash rate increases, match the lived experience of Australians? There's already a schism between Dr Chalmers and the bank's board on the ability of Australians to withstand these rate rises. The Treasurer reckons these rate rises are a gut punch for Australians, and he's been at pains to distance himself in the government from the machinations of the RBA. That's as Deputy Governor Michelle Bullock earlier this week voiced confidence in many Australians having sufficient savings or financial prowess to deal with the interest rate rises they are now subject to. All of which raises the question of whether inflation is as painful as is being reported and to which the numbers appear to suggest. Nobel Prize winner Joseph Stiglitz toured Australia this month. He had a front row audience with Dr Chalmers and among other suggestions such as the institution of a windfall profits tax to claw back gains not passed on through wage increases that the RBA cut some slack on inflation and hold its nerve when inflation was outside of its desired 2 to 3% target band. It's a view of which, Matt, I imagine you're not terribly fond. Yeah, well, that's a good prediction there, Jordan. You know, I had a, um, I spoke to a business commentator recently, a very well-respected business commentator. Do they work at a bank? Do they work at a lobby group? You don't know because I'm keeping their identity secret. But what they said to me was, when I said to them, we were talking about inflation, I said, gee, isn't it interesting the Reserve Bank's balance sheet tripled? over the past couple of years, they said, ha, you're the first monetarist I met this century. People stopped believing in that 40 years ago. I go, hmm, okay. But then I don't know if it's that controversial an assertion, Jordan. Um, And there's a couple of things I want to talk about here on this. One is the predict, let's talk about predictive power, and we'll also talk about the economics of it all. I remember when we did the the big feature at the breakout of the pandemic in March 2020, where we talked about, where we, you remember we had the drone shot of the city and the virus on the front. And I remember asking people in, the, in interviews, asking economists, I said, gee, a yield target and government stimulus, that seems inflationary. And people said, no, 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 it's fine. Don't worry about it. You know, and if there is any effect, it'll be two or three years away, which is where we are now. Um, and you will recall the commentary over the months that followed. Inflation, no problem. We won't ever have inflation again. Let's spend more money. Then it was, 
uh, base effects. Then it was, oh, it's temporary. Then we got, oh, it's Ukraine and Putin. And then we got, it's only an increase if it's only an issue if wages increase. And now people seem to acknowledge it's a problem. What I want to put to you, Jordan, is this is what I call the series of coincidences theory about inflation, because there's an explanation for everything. Food prices up, floods. Uh, you know, workers, skill shortage, that's a different thing. There's supply chain problems. Ah, Ukraine, that explains grain, that explains food, that explains oil. Uh, construction costs are going up, you know. Oh, it's because, you know, the price of steel is higher and the price of concrete and because we can't get workers. Do we really believe that all of these are just independent, random things happening at the same time, all with a coincidentally inflation impact? And my thinking is actually it's the easy money and the excessive stimulus that means that the impact of all these things happening uh, has been much more painful than it may otherwise have been. The Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe, has said the highest share of CPI basket items are over target uh, at, than at any point in the, per, in the past 30 years. So again, is it a series of coincidences or is it um, is there a unifying problem in all of this, which has been the easy money and also federal, you know, the big stimulus from governments around the world. Is there a unifying problem or is it all just a series of coincidences? Uh, the questions you need to think about are, I mean, here in WA, it was all about we don't have enough workers. It's all because of the border. Well, in, in the UK, they didn't have enough workers. It was all because of Brexit. When you walk down uh, historic Route 66 in Williams, Arizona, and every shop there has signs out saying, we need more staff, we need more staff. You start to think that actually this is very much a widespread problem, the lack of having enough workers. Um, if this was really about the Ukraine crisis, ask yourself this, why, didn't, why was inflation hitting records in Perth and in the US at the end of last year? If this is really... Uh, just a whole bunch of coincidences, why is it that places like Japan and Saudi Arabia have higher than usual inflation, but much less higher than most of the, West, most of the Western world does? Japan, I think it was something like 2.5% it might have been, uh, which is higher than usual, uh, but not that high. Why is that? Uh, if this was all about supply chains, then why is it that people didn't come out 18 months ago when they knew that there were supply chain problems warning about the inflation impact? Instead, we got, don't worry, there'll be no issues, inflation will be temporary. So for me, the commentators making these calls appear to be looking in the rear vision mirror, just trying to explain something that they've missed, explain something that they didn't see coming at all. Um, and that's not a particularly way, useful way of doing economics. Now, by the way, this is not the first time we've had supply chain issues in the world. Do you remember all of the warnings about um, the catastrophic supply chain disruptions from Brexit? Well, that didn't cause 10% or you know, nearly double-digit inflation. You might remember this is not the only major invasion of, an oil, of, a, of a country that involved an oil-producing power. There was the Iraq War 20 years ago, and that caused petrol prices to go up, but it didn't cause double-digit inflation. And then the other point to make is that we're getting uh, record low unemployment uh, at a time of record inflation. Again, is it all just a series of coincidences? I put it to you that it's not, because... And this is not a controversial thing in economics. It's not just a monetarist thing to say this. There's been a lot of stimulus. Um, and of course, you drive up demand, you're going to have low unemployment and you're going to have higher levels of inflation. I don't think that's um, a particularly controversial thing to say. So yes, there's a lot of frustrations out there, but there are unifying problems that bring all this together. And that increase in demand also helps explain why we've got shortages of products 
and it explains the extra pressure on supply chains, Jordan. Matt, you've come on to our close of business for many months now to plead this case. <laughs> let's, let's talk about how you view uh, fiscal stimulus in concert with how monetary relief has pay, played out. Well, as I say, I mean, there's no debate, right, that there, are, that there are these frustrations about the oil price and, you know, these supply chain issues. But what I put to you is easy money... Right when you when you have a, a lot of money extra money going into the system when you have very low interest rates it accommodates the problem because if money was tight um, people would have to make much tougher decisions when petrol prices go up um, they'd have to substitute perhaps spending away from other items so that they could afford to fill up their car um, whereas when you have money that's easy and businesses have a lot of revenue coming in and all the rest of it, and a lot of cash coming in, um, they can afford to pay more for petrol while affording to pay more for their steel and concrete and whatever else. So um, that's part of it there. Uh, something that I find fascinating about this is, you know, uh, it was a book uh, by Milton Friedman and often forgotten there was actually a, a lady who also co-authored the book, Anna Schwartz. It was called A Monetary History of the United States. And this brought up this whole issue of the money supply and money policy, monetary policy really having an impact on the economy. One of the things Milton Friedman said, and this is just, you couldn't make this up, Jordan. He says, usually the impact of, you know, money being created or money policy being easy, monetary policy being easy, takes about two years. And you think to yourself, hmm, March 2020 pandemic to, huh, March 2022. What a coincidence. Um, now, the, everybody would agree, right, that money creation drives demand. Even those people who are Keynesians or in different economic schools of thought, um, everybody would agree that federal government stimulus drives demand. That's the whole point of the exercise. That's why we had easy money, why we had lower interest rates, and it's why we had deficit spending, because it was intended to drive demand um, as, uh, as the economy went into a very difficult period. But uh, the thing is, people didn't stop. Josh Frydenberg kept wanting to drive down unemployment. First, it was one number, then it was a much lower number. And I think you know, he might have wanted to continue driving down unemployment until it was, I don't know, negative 12% or something like that with the amount of money he was spending. Perhaps that at that level, perhaps he might have been able to win an election. Now, I understand you can't actually have negative unemployment. It's a joke. Uh, people will say to me, well, it, Matt, the inflation impact of the easy money depends on demand and supply of real goods and services. And I might say, yeah, so? That's not controversial. Anybody, yeah, everybody knows, right, that if you have a recession and you have easy money policy and you print money or whatever you want to call it, uh, that it's not immediately going to be inflationary. Yeah, okay, that's not controversial. But what you do need to think about is when you're coming out of a recession, what's the impact going to be after that? And that is perhaps something that the Treasurer and the Reserve Bank might have overlooked, Jordan. Neither of us are economists, although you have significantly more qualifications on the subject than I do. Uh, what do you anticipate will happen to the cash rate when the RBA meets next month, uh, bearing in mind neither of us are clairvoyance either? <laughs> I actually think, you know, the market's priced in, I recall reading that the market had priced in 75 basis points. I think it will probably be 50, actually, because uh, Philip Lowe has been very dovish. Um, and then over the longer term, in terms of where interest rates are going, I'll tell you one thing, you've never met a Reserve Bank governor more obsessed with talking about what the neutral rate of interest is. And that is basically the, uh, if you, you have a headline rate of interest, and that's 1.35%, uh, but you also have to adjust for inflation to work out what the actual effect is. Um, now, if you were someone with a debt a year ago, the value of your debt has actually been reduced by the, by the inflation. Um, if you're someone who's got money in the bank, the value of your money in the bank has been reduced by inflation. So savers punished, debtors 
um, have the benefit of the real value of their debt falling. So that's what um, a real interest rate is all about. Now, there's a lot of commentary in the market that people have read what Philip Lowe has said, and they think that he's going to target 2.5% interest rates. I think Comsec just had something the other day saying that. I think that's wrong for three reasons. Well, actually, it's wrong for four reasons. The first one is that he's consistently said that he'll be um, swayed by evidence as it comes along, and he's also been consistently dovish, so if there's any recession risk, he'll probably act very quickly. But the other three reasons are there's no reason why this so-called real rate of interest ought to be zero, which is what people are basing their calculations on, because if that's the case, if you're saving, you're not being rewarded. Why should that be? There's no reason that we should be going for a neutral real rate of interest either. We have an inflation problem. You would think that money should be tighter than neutral. So a neutral rate is where there's no pressure to expand the economy and there's also no slowing of the economy by monetary policy. But if you have high inflation, maybe you should be trying to slow the economy a little bit. And the third point is, or the, the final point is, there's also no reason why inflation expectations ought to be 2.5% over the long term. Um, and so I would think that the Reserve Bank would probably be more likely to get to an interest rate of 4% if you use this methodology. But it is just a guide. And as I said to you before, I think it's quite likely that if there's a recession risk, that the Reserve Bank might reverse course. And of course, among all these things that we are talking about, recession is the main fear. It would appear the US is headed towards one, uh, which would have a catastrophic impact for everyone. How do you assess the likelihood of Australia slipping into one too? Well, if the US goes into one, then it might, you know, the chances of Australia having one are much higher. And of course, China, the economy is shrinking there too. So again, it means the chances of Australia going into one are much higher. I'm generally an optimist about economic matters. Um, and so, you know, I'm not the type of person that you always, there's always someone wanting to say that there's going to be a recession and they're usually wrong. So I'm very cautious about this, but I do feel a little bit more cautious about the possibility of a recession than I did a few months ago. And I know that the Bank of America, I think, last week said it's now, it, they now think it's more than 50% likely there'll be a recession in the US. There's lots of commentators, even today, I see in my, in my uh, Google news feed saying, oh, the Reserve Bank's going to drive the country into a recession. Here's the way to think about this. Um, it's like a bathtub, right? And the Reserve Bank had the tap going. That's the low interest rates. They also had the shower head absolutely belting out. That's quantitative easing. And for those of you living in the very expensive mansions where the shower might be separate from the bathtub, for the point of the metaphor, the shower head is filling up the bathtub and the bathtub is filling up very quickly. And then Josh Frydenberg jumped in there last year with another deficit budget and a lot of extra spending for different things. And of course, you get the risk of the bathtub overflowing. Now, the Reserve Bank's taken out the plug. And here is the real question as to what happens next is um, you, you've turned off the, the you've turned down the tap, you've turned off the shower head, and you've pulled out the plug. So here's a question. Um, how fast does the water drain out? Because then if it drains out too quickly, that's when you get a recession, you get potentially, you get risks in the opposite direction. And history, Jordan, is littered with examples, particularly in the 60s and the 70s, of um, reserve banks or central banks who uh, basically crunch the money supply, or, or they, sorry, they, they have excessive easy money, they get an inflation problem, then they crunch down on it and they have a recession problem, and then they reverse course again and they expand it. That was almost the, the story of the US economy for 20 years. You know, uh, These business cycles driven by the Reserve Bank or the Federal Reserve making one decision and then doing the opposite and then doing the opposite again as things changed. Um, and so the interesting question about all of this, and remember, 
the Great Depression too, uh, a big crunch of the money supply that made what would have been a bad recession much, much worse. So the big question about this, I mentioned that figure earlier, and I constantly mention it in my articles about the balance sheet of the Reserve Bank tripling over two years. Has all of that been soaked up by the economy? Maybe it hasn't, right? Because it takes two years. We had a pandemic. We had a very unusual circumstance. So there's a lots of evidence to suggest that certainly in the first few months there, it wouldn't have been soaked up. It's a very unusual time. So maybe it's the case that not all of this extra money has been soaked up in the economy. And if that's the case, perhaps the Reserve Bank has reversed course slower than it should have, but quickly enough to avoid this becoming an ongoing problem. But maybe not. Um, and what will be particularly interesting is if we do go into a recession, um, some central bankers seem to be having this, this view that they would rather risk a recession um, than have inflation expectations get out of control. And that's because once you lose control of inflation, it is so, so difficult to fix. Um, it's easier to fix a recession than it is to fix 10% you know, expected inflation or whatever. And so that's why people, some of these reserve bank governors or central bank governors would rather um, would rather potentially risk a recession than inflation getting out of control. Um, but the question is, if we do go into a recession and they change course, will we end up in this situation where we have this repeated cycle of inflation gradual, inflation being higher each time and the punishment being worse each time to try and get out of it. Because Philip Lowe was right, right? The worse this problem becomes, the more pain there is to try and get inflation back into the target band. And so it remains to be seen whether Dr Lowe will stay the course and the Reserve Bank, and it remains to be seen what the impact will be of other countries potentially going into recession too, Jordan. But you know what? I think there's reason to be a little bit more pessimistic perhaps than this time last year. You don't often leave me with really distressing imagery, but the idea of Josh Frydenberg jumping into a bathtub is going to stick with me for many weeks to come. Fully clothed. Fully clothed. Thank you for that clarification there. You can read more like this on our website. Uh, I covered Mark Barnabas. I covered Mark Barnabas reappointment to the RBA board this week. Last week, uh, Matt had covered inflation and particularly addressed uh, inflation in Japan. Uh, to read more, head to businessnews.com.au. But in the meantime, Matt, thank you so much. Thank you, Jordan. The latest business news delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au.